Welcome to DMs of Vancouver. The show where we talk to our awesome friends and amazing guests about how to help you become a better GM for your tabletop games, or to review games that we've played recently from a GM and a player perspective. I'm Jesse Boros, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Sean Hagen, and my pronouns are also he, him. We're your co-hosts for this podcast, and we've got another great episode for you. This podcast is recorded and produced on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. And today we're going to be doing another review. This time we're reviewing Kids on Bikes. Yes. Who makes Kids on Bikes, Sean? Kids on Bikes is from, uh, well, there's three names on the back here. I've got Infectious Play Publishing, Renegade Game Studios, and Hunters. Uh Looks like the two fellows who were uh, wrote this were Jonathan Gilmore and Doug Lewandowski. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar with Kids on Bikes, uh, the little blurb on the front is a role-playing game about small towns and big adventures. And uh, from the inside, uh, basically, in Kids on Bikes, you'll take on the roles of everyday people grappling with strange, terrifying, and exceptionally powerful forces that they cannot defeat, control, or even fully understand. The only way to face them is to work together, use your strengths, and know when you just have to run as fast as you can. So uh, we played, a little while ago now, uh, from this recording, we played uh, a free RPG day module um, as a uh, an intro. Uh, I GM'd, and uh, that's because I have the book, and I've been wanting to play this for a while. Um, and uh, we had Jesse was a player, along with Haley and Tori, so thank you to them. Yes, our currently our standard group of players, um, because of availability reasons and also yep. intersection of interest. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, kids on bikes is a is a pretty interesting game. I think the theme of this game, as far as like aesthetic, I'd say it's you're playing as like stranger things but instead of other games where you might play as like just the kids or just the adults in kids on bikes you could with a big enough party literally replay uh stranger things like you can play as kids you can play as teenagers and you can play as adults which i think is is really interesting i'd be curious to see how that works in an actual campaign because when you've got characters who are kids and characters who are adults like it's kind of like Stranger Things, right? There's not really a lot of reason for them to hang out all the time. So usually they're kind of having parallel adventures. Yeah. So the thing I find interesting about the game is like Stranger Things is, I think, the most current suggestion, right? But it's really any like especially 80s themed kind of like kid slash teen adventure movies. Yeah. And I know I think I saw when I was looking through the, the rules at one point that it kind of references how like if you're playing an adventure with adults, you can push it more into horror. Like it allows it to push more into that. Um, but I also like, like, um, have you ever read something wicked this way comes? No, I have not. So it's a classic Ray Bradbury novel and it's like largely about two kids, but eventually one of their dads gets like heavily involved in it. Okay. Um, and I, I do like the fact that, uh, if you build an adult, you actually have more resources of a certain kind. Yeah. You tend to have more flaws as well, I think. But like you have more access to money because you're an adult and you presumably like have a job or have some sort of income. Or even if you don't, you might have savings or whatever, right? Whereas yeah. kids don't have that. Yeah. And so so speaking of like what kids get and what adults get, we can uh jump into character creation a little bit. 
Um, before we come back to uh, two bits that I want to cover, I, the table of contents, I must say, is just nicely laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're creating a character, uh, they borrow a page from the Powered by the Apocalypse system where it's uh, rather than have like a blank character sheet and you just go through a process of picking what what stats you're going to put where and all that stuff, they have playbooks. And the playbooks tell you uh, like what age would this trope be that's in, in this, uh, in Kids on Bikes, they're tropes, not so much uh, just playbooks, which I think helps because the name of them are definitely tropey. Like, you know, you've got the child or the teen who's the bully. You've got a teen or adult who's a conspiracy theorist. Uh, you've got the loner weirdo, the popular kid. So, you know, the names of these tropes kind of help give you an idea of what kind of character. And the next thing that the, the these all have laid out for you is what your stats are. And I think this is the the first thing that I, when I was reading through the book, that I really thought was really interesting. I said really way too many times there. Um, but uh, in Kids on Bikes, you play with uh, all six of the standard dice that you use to play uh, like Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. Um, but rather than using one die for most things and then just having the other dice there for damage in kids on bikes each dice is assigned to one of your stats so for your stats you've got fight charm brains grit brawn and oh flight and uh what what happens with these uh tropes with these playbooks is that they tell you what dice is assigned to what stat so rather than having like a straight up number for all all six of these stats where you've got a you know, a bonus if you're making a flight roll or, a, you know, you've got a negative modifier if you're rolling grit for this one type of character. It's tells you what dice to roll because the way that the main resolution mechanic works is the GM just says, okay, it's a difficulty 10. And, f- you know, it's a difficulty 10 fight roll to try and attack somebody, for example. And what or it's a fight role, not dif- specifically difficulty 10. Um, but the way that it works is that when the GM tells you what the difficulty and what the stat is, you take the dice from that stat and you roll it. And as you can probably tell straight away, that means that somebody who's rolling a D4 for something, they can't roll a 20. How are they ever going to succeed on something that's harder with that stat? Well, dice can explode which means that if you roll the maximum number for that dice, you get to pick it up and roll it again. And as long as you keep exploding in dice, you can keep rolling it, which means that, well, highly unlikely, somebody with a D4 for a stat could beat a difficulty of 17 or 18 or 19 or 20. Well, and we had that in the game at one point. I think I had to roll brawn for my character, which was my D4 stat. And I think I rolled two fours in a row. Yeah. But rolled a one on the last one. So it was just shy of the 10 I needed. Yeah. And that's... One of the things that I think is really interesting about this is that, you know, on a on a D12, the chance of getting a 12 so that the dice can explode is a lot lower than on a D4 because, you know, the probability of getting any one number on a dice is, you know, depends on the number of sides. So, yeah, D4, you can only roll as high as a four, but that four is much more likely to come up than, on you know, trying to get an eight on a D8 or a 10 on a D10. Oh, exactly right like the worse you are at a thing uh it doesn't exclude you from having like your or your character rather from having like a, a moment of inspiration if maybe intelligence is your thing or a burst of strength 
because of adrenaline if brawn or fight is your thing right like yeah um it still penalizes you for being low in that stat but not so much that it makes anything impossible yeah and i think that's a it's a pretty cool setup so that uh because one of the things that they say is that like you know the d4 stat is the one that you know the, when you first meet somebody they know this is what you're bad at and your d20 is the one that they know that you're amazing at and so all of these playbooks having you know the different dice uh layouts i guess basically uh it, it helps you guide towards picking the trope that works for the character you want to play because one of the other things that these tropes lay out for you are your possible strengths and likely flaws because each character has uh, a strength and a flaw and I'm trying to remember what the strengths and the flaws get so you. So the flaws for... While you look that up, I'll give an example of strengths and flaws. Uh, so during the game, I played Cassandra Jones, the conspiracy theorist. My strengths were that I was intuitive. Um, and I could spend adversity tokens uh, to ask the GMs about my surroundings um, or an NPC or something like that. And the GM had to answer honestly. Um and heroic, which means that I didn't need permission from the GM to spend adversity tokens to ignore my character's fear. On the other hand, my flaws were paranoid and secretive. Um, my impression of the flaws, and granted I didn't read this in the rules, uh, was that they more inform your character's attitude and how, like, you know, if my character learns something important on their own, they might not share it with the party because they are secretive, and that is a character flaw. Because most of them are descriptive rather than prescriptive, right? Yeah. Strengths are mechanical advantages that your character will have when playing the game. Flaws are not mechanical, but they'll help you develop your character's personality. Uh, Full list. Yeah. I'm just blanking on where the information on how the strength helps mechanically is. but um, Well, they they all do different things, right? They have specific things. I'm looking through the pre-gens that we used. Um, and they all have are differently prescriptive. They usually involve adversity tokens, though, in some way. Yeah, that's you are correct. That is, yeah. So yeah, the strengths are special skills. Oh yeah, here we go. Strengths. It's an appendix at the back. Um, yeah, they're all yeah. They are all just uh, special skills, straight up. That's all they are. But uh, they do help give some flavor to the characters. Um, and so one thing that's uh, that you might have been wondering is. Jesse mentioned adversity tokens, and what are those? Those are uh, tokens that you have from the start of the game, and whenever you fail a roll, you get an adversity token. So paired with the GM supposed to be failing forward whenever the characters fail. So rather than, you know, the door stays locked, you know, maybe you get in, but there's now an adult who knows you're, uh, you know, snuck into the school and is going to be trying to find you. But uh, the adversity tokens are something that... The characters use mostly to power their their various strengths, um, but they are also used to give yourself a plus one on the roll. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I can't remember. Probably, I don't <laughs> think I ever used them for that. I think I saved them up to interrogate you about things, right? Because of your slightly overpowered <laughs> strength. I mean, it's only overpowered if you abuse it intentionally. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't quite remember where the well. While you're looking are, that up, but, I do. Actually I'm, just wanna... gonna, I'm just going to say really quickly that it has been a little bit longer than uh, than usual between playing the game and recording. Yeah, 
I actually want to say something about the strength intuitive and like abilities like that in games. Okay. Because like I agree they can be overpowered and abused, but I, I think that it's one of those things where it's it's a respect thing between the player and the GM, right? Like I'm not going to ask you, well, what's the solution to the mystery? Because that is not fun. And it's not it's not like a, it's not very sportsmanlike, I guess. Which is yeah. a weird way to put it. Like, I mean, I think that is the best way to put it. Actually, yeah. is like you're you're all there to to play the game and have fun. And if you you know decide to have fun by taking away from the GM's fun of just asking what is the solution, you know, or the other players even at the table. Um, yeah, and I think also there are situations within the game, like when you're like right at the edge of figuring out what it is. I think that's a great time to pull out a skill like that and be like, okay, but. We've got all these pieces. We're not putting it together, but like, how do they all connect? Yeah. Like if you've put in the work, I think it's fine to use something like that to have a very broad uh, story question. But I think it's like, if you're at the beginning of the mystery and you're like, oh, okay, but this thing. Yeah. You know, be, be respectful to your GM and don't do that. And also like your GM can say no to that kind of thing because that is probably too general or not specific enough. Yeah. So, so yeah, the the adversity tokens can be spent to activate a strength, but they can also be spent to help with each token adding plus one to a roll. So, um, the uh, this comes in with the the fact that the game has planned actions and snap decisions. But yeah, it's the the main thing for adversity tokens is the plus one to the roll. So, the difference between the actions is basically what the GM will say when uh, you know. When something happens that the character has to, as the title suggests, make a snap decision, such as, you know, the uh, you know the the school bully has come up and is is punching them. Like snap decision is you defend yourself. You don't get to spend a bunch of time planning the best way to do it. So one of the the way that these differ is pretty much just how are you able to apply uh, whatever you've got with you and get help from your friends. If it's a planned action, um, because when when you've got the time to uh, like sit down and figure out, uh, you know, the best way to accomplish something, the game, you know, gives you a few more tools to work with so that you can up your chances of succeeding at something. So like other char- other characters can help during planned actions. Uh, you get to for uh, children, teens and adults, they actually get a plus one to to specific stats but only when it's a planned action so like adults are better grit and brains and uh teens are better at brawn and fight and children have charm and flight so you know all six of the stats are covered but um snap decisions are ones where yeah the player doesn't get a chance to like (laughs) huddle up with somebody and try and figure out the best way to avoid a punch it's you have to roll to avoid a punch now um yeah so was there anything else about the the mechanics at this kind of... Because I think we've basically covered all the mechanics. Uh, that... At the basic level, I think there's one other important one, which I believe is a rule that children can't die. I think you're thinking of Tales from the Loop. Oh, okay. Yes, that's a similar kind of yeah. kids-based game. Okay, well then disregard that. Um, <laughs> so and I think I was actually thinking about this the other day, that... I understand where 
Tales from the Loop is going with that rule because you only play as children, you know, children aged, like I think there's an age range from like eight to 13 or something. And I understand why, because when it's a game where it's only children, you want, they're trying to get you to tell specific kinds of stories, you know. Yeah, it's a genre convention. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's more mysteries and kids adventure than horror. And that's where kids on bikes is, is leaning towards. So Tales from the Loop saying that you can't die, I get it because you're not telling horror games. But with kids on bikes, you know, because you can have an adult and a teenager or two and a kid trying to solve, you know, the mystery of what monster is killing people in town, like any one of them being able to die, I think is definitely definitely part of the horror thing. But it also means that you don't have to worry about pulling your punches in what might end up feeling like a pretty lame way. Like if, because I guess that was one, the one thing about Tales from the Loop that I've kind of been curious to see how it plays out is that what do you do when you're at that final showdown and it's with a you know dangerous robot that you're trying to contain without any help from adults? It feels like when you know that the kid, you know, your kids can't die. That I'm just really curious to see how that would end up playing out. That's where fates worse than death come in, which I'm sure isn't in the book, but is also a genre convention. Think about, uh, what is it, Will Bynes in, in uh, Stranger Things? Like, at the end of it, he is hosting a parasite from another dimension. Like, right, yeah. There are conventions where the character doesn't die, but something horrible still happens to them. And I guess that's, yeah, I guess for, for Tales from the Loop, that's definitely the way to think about it. But we're not talking about Tales from the Loop, we're talking about kids on bikes. Um, I would like you to tell me and the listeners about uh, supernatural characters. Yeah, we can talk about powered characters next. So this is something that I think is a a really well done thing in a game where the inspiration is definitely Stranger Things or E.T. or those kind of things where there's some kind of player with spe- character with special abilities or they're an alien you're trying to hide from your parents or whatever. But Powered characters are characters that are created by the GM, but the reins are handed over to the players as a whole. So rather than have, you know, if you've got four players, rather than having three of them playing just regular kids and one of them getting to go wild with psychic powers, the character is shared by all of the players so that, yeah, one player gets to control a little bit more when they use the powers, like maybe during fights, but one of the players gets to be the powered character whenever they're interacting with somebody outside of the my throat is real dry today oh no (laughs) um one of the players will be in control of the the powered character when they're interacting with somebody outside of the kids group so depending on how many players you've got at your table you can have all sorts of different responsibilities handed out to them with regards to who plays what for this character and i really think that it's a a great shortcut around who gets to play the the powered character because it's kind of like you know stories I've heard of people playing a Star Wars game and everybody agreeing we're all just going to be rebel fighters we're uh, nobody's going to play a Jedi nobody's going to play you know a Republic commando or anything we're all going to gentlemen's agreement to all play a specific type of character and then having one person come in with a Jedi after the fact like this shortcuts you know any kind of uh, player grievances by just saying no you all are in control of the really cool character it's also great because it keeps players who are maybe not in a scene uh active in the game 
Like, so, like, you know, say there are three players, like in our game, right? Say my character's not in a scene. Great. Uh, I can play the supernatural character who happens to be in that scene. And yeah. I'm still involved. And uh, and also, you know, the other players, say they get in a fight, don't have to worry about the mechanics of that supernatural pl- character because I'm doing that. So yeah. it, it takes away responsibility. And, and it's nice because it takes it away from the GM too, right? Because the other option, of course, would be to have be a GM just fully run that character, which is fine, but it is more work for you. Yeah, the GM already has enough to do. Uh, not having to control another NPC is pretty great. Yeah. Um, so something that I want to go back and touch on from, like, it's actually one of the first things you encounter when you open up this book. Um, and it actually directly ties into the uh, whole question of, you know, can kids die in kids on bikes? And the reason I wanted to talk about this section is because it's specifically about setting boundaries. Uh, it's about you know what the gm and player should do at the start of the game to say you know this is you know the gm can have a chance to sit down which you like for a lot of games you should be doing especially if you're getting into horror but uh you know having the sit down and just saying like hey what do you not want to see at all uh you know, these are some of the things that I was thinking of doing, like going through the whole exercise of just like asking the players, like, is it OK if there are spiders? Is it OK if the players who are playing kids are still placed in serious danger? Like you have a conversation about what everybody is comfortable with and establishing those boundaries so that, you know, everybody knows ahead of time that the kids can get hurt, but they're not going to be maimed or anything they they're not going to die in this game because we're just we're not comfortable playing a game where that happens yeah i think an important thing to note about this game is that it's not really a combat focused game you can fight and that is a stat but it's not like you're not going to have a lot of protracted fights yeah and actually one thing about the combat system is that this is uh it's done the same way that i think most narrative games lean on which is you make a single role and then you narrate how the entire fight goes. Um, It probably gets a little wonky when you have like, you know, all four player characters attacking the, uh, uh, the big bad monster at the end of the campaign. But I think you would probably just handle that as a bunch of single roles. But one of the things that I really like about kids on bikes and the way that it handles combat is how you determine what the outcome is of your role, because it's not like regular skill checks where the DM says, Oh, it's difficulty 10. Because you're always rolling against the other character in the fight, uh, you roll your skill against theirs. So, if uh, if I was attacking, you know, the town bully, uh, I'd be rolling fight, and they would be rolling uh, flight or grit, depending on if they're going to try and describe it as, uh, you know dodging out of the way versus just straight up taking the punch uh it also depends on what dice they have assigned to that skill because when you're defending you want to use the highest dice possible but the way that it's uh you determine what the outcome is is based on the difference between your two roles which i think is a fantastic way to do this because my complaint with that i've had so far with games that have a narrative system with no hp is that there's no guidance in the books or, and sometimes I get it for like a one page PDF, you know, there's not really a lot of room to have a bunch of guidance on how to handle this. But the fact that in here they tell you like, okay, 
if the defender's role is greater, they've won the, the roll off. The defender is uninjured, projectiles miss, blows don't land, or they don't hurt. And the defender is who gets to narrate the outcome, all the way down to, you know, the attacker's role is greater by 10 or more. The attacker has full control over the, the narrative of how this fight plays out. And the defender is like dead or quite nearly dead. The bullet hits them. You know, it has this scale from the defender is absolutely fine to like they're a little bit scratched to hurt to they are out of the game now. I think having that guidance built into how the you resolve the role is, I think, a really clean way of doing this. Yeah. You know, so the thing about kids on bikes, or at least well, the thing we played of it, is that like I found we weren't rolling a lot. We did roll occasionally, but like largely we would make plans in character, and it like it did really uh, facilitate role playing, which with our group is not always the case. Um, but like it was one of those things where like since we made plans that were largely in character and often planned things out, so there was like we were pushing against the least amount of resistance for a lot of stuff early on, especially when we were trying to figure stuff out. Um, I found that it is one of those games and this is not a fault uh, to me. This is a, this is a plus, but I know not everybody enjoys this in the game where, yeah, you can just shit or sit and shoot the shit as your characters for an entire session and like almost never roll um, depending how you're approaching stuff. Um and of course, that's that's one of those things too, where the GM can you know think of a way to inject conflict if that's what's happening. Yeah, and the thing I like about this system is that it means that you can have a. Uh, it's easy to adapt how this combat system works to, uh, like an interpersonal conflict between two of the characters. So you know, hopefully, your players aren't actually having a conflict; they're just role playing the characters having a fight. But you can like very quickly adapt this to, you know, how do you resolve this fight that your characters are having? It's not a, you know, you don't have to like do a coin toss or 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 something. If you're, if both of you think that your characters wouldn't back down, like you can have this way of, you know, of resolving combat be the way that you resolve a social combat by using, you know, charm or brains versus, well, probably charm or brains, but. Uh, uh, having it in there for like yeah i rolled uh high enough to defend i don't have to like my character is not is you know not going to back down or they win or however it is you want to do that but i think it's a pretty neat system yeah and i think that works well too for like for adding the drama but because it's such a role play heavy game conflicts between characters make sense and you shouldn't try to solve them right now because then you know if there's an ongoing conflict it's great to you know have the resolution happen while you're dealing with a threat and they do something and now they respect each other or whatever, right? You know, story conventions. <laughs> yeah. And and to, and to help with that, part of the thing that uh, you would do if you were actually creating characters for a session rather than just playing uh, the pregens like we did for the module is that part of it is that you pick you you roll and you pick a question from like there's a positive list and a negative list. So, you know, uh there's questions like what do you admire about this character but would never tell them and what's your first memory of this character or what did this character do in the past that you still resent them for so there's there's stuff in here for when you're creating your character that'll help i think especially newer groups that are not as comfortable role-playing like get the hang of you know thinking like their characters 
wondering what their characters would do in certain situations. And also, yeah, for stuff like, you know, you're in an adventure and one character is, you know, a bit narcissistic and the other one thinks they should always be in charge. And you that can be driven by these questions that you ask when you're creating your character. Yeah. Um, Sean, I think I've thought of a couple other things to talk about. But before we talk about, I guess, bikes and backpacks, which are kind of two important things, one of which I think we had a bit of a struggle with understanding at the outset. Yeah. Um, should what is there anything else you wanted to go over? Um, I think no, we've gone over pretty much all the the main stuff, the main information. But I think it's just that this is a fairly straightforward system. Uh, there's not really a lot. Most of the text in this, I would say, is making sure that you've got a an understanding of like what it is when you're actually doing combat like here's lots of tips on how to do all of this storytelling stuff the kinds of questions you can ask and what resolving a role means and i think that's that's also pretty great about how this book is set up but yeah. anyways yes Ooh, actually before we get into the other stuff i want to say something about the module uh we had it's the free rpg module which is called uh the house on poplar court yes um which is a mini campaign, which I, I think we could have easily actually stretched out much longer if yeah. we wanted to. Um, I would definitely, if you want to play this, I would definitely suggest picking it up, not only because, you know, the characters are fun and it's it's a nice introduction and you get like, you really get a feel for the setting from the book. They also do something very important to this kind of story, which is go over what the ta- like what the town is like, the resources in the town, and the people... And they divide them up into trusted friends and dastardly foes, which is a good example if you're going to run a game like this. Because, yeah, ultimately you need, you know, if you're playing high school students or elementary school students or whatever, like, yeah, what teachers are going to help them out? Where are they going to get information? Who is going to try and stop them? Who might they be afraid of or worried about? Like, all of those details are really important. um, And I think even though we only played this game for three hours, because we had all read that beforehand, we had a bit more of a feel for what the town was like. Yeah. And, uh, and also think... there's, there's no reason you couldn't just take the setting from this and change the adventure entirely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is something that uh, you did mention the, the bikes and the backpacks. And I think one of the things when it comes to the information about the town is that, uh, it it gives you an idea of what's in the town. It doesn't specifically lay out. You don't get a map or anything. But one of the things it does mention is specifically that to get from one side of this town to the other on their bikes is like, it's doable for the kids. They're not living somewhere where, you know, they have to wait until the weekend to go and get to the quarry because they can bike there pretty easily. So it does, I think, help keep things moving when you don't have to worry about the players, uh, how how are they acquiring transport to get to place when it's further than a bike is not something you have to worry about when in this module. Yes. Um, did you want to talk about the, the backpacks? Cause I think, yeah. So, and this was a thing with just like how we started the game. I think we, like we kind of just flubbed going more specifically into what the backpack was. Notably, I don't think it created any problems. I think it was just something that was kind of unclear. Um, and it was a thing that I wish was in the module, which it wasn't really. Um, so how backpack works is that, you know, your characters, especially if they're kids or teens, all have a backpack and you're supposed to kind of establish 
like what would this kind this character have in their backpack so it's like you know oh i'm a, a scout look i'm in the scouts i always have a pocket knife when i'm not at school but also it's supposed to kind of figuratively also represent advantages the type of advantages your character has yeah so like really quickly like a good example is how much money does your character have access to and the the game makes a good point that uh you know kids probably aren't going to have access to much money if they if they have an allowance it's not going to be very big teenagers uh they might have a job and but like it's a part-time job so they're not going to be able to for example uh buy a car if they need to get somewhere but an adult character uh would probably have enough money to buy a car but it means that they are used up their life savings they're not being you know not making any other big purchases if they pick up a car but it gives you an idea of uh like figuratively what does this character have access to so that you know like okay you know they've got this much money so you know the teenager going to buy some lab supplies because they need to try and analyze the weird slime the monster left behind you know maybe the adult character that's being played by one of the players needs to help out with that because it's maybe more expensive than they thought it was yeah and i think the backpack is also a an important thing to talk about because it also deepens a sense of character and i want to read the examples in the free rpg day player's handbook for that so because there's two examples they give i think that really highlight it well so uh, quoting from the book for example Azra's backpack might indicate that her parents are exceptionally supportive and do everything they can to give her the resources to succeed at school. On the other hand, Ibrahim's backpack might indicate that his bad relationship with his parents has given him a strong sense of self-reliance and the ability to do things for himself. Like, it's not specific things in the backpack, but it's like, what does the backpack kind of represent about their character? How does their relationship with the world affect what's in there? Yeah. And that is, I think this is also one of those places, though, with the backpack where you have to be, uh, you know, gentleman's agreement kind of stuff of like, if you don't lay out exactly physically what is in your backpack when you go out to do something, like, just because your player, your character could have access to something doesn't mean that they should have access to it when they're out in the middle of somewhere. Because, you know, if you're all going into the sewers to search for the weird demon clown thing, and uh, you say that, you know, your character has a flashlight and a broken bottle as a weapon, like pulling something out in the middle of the final confrontation because you really, your character really needed to have a flare gun or something. This is one of those places where when it comes to a storytelling game, you and your player, your, char- your players kind of have to agree to not deus ex machina stuff. Machina? Yeah, either. Doesn't really matter. Um <laughs> So like that's that's kind of what I'm getting at when I like I wish we had spent a bit more time talking about it before we started. Yeah. Because I feel like what you could do, like a good rule of thumb would be what are some key items you're likely to have? Like the scout has a knife and maybe has some rope, because they're a scout, they know how to tie ropes. Yeah. Those are key items, right? Uh or like my character, and actually I think Tori's character is both we both decided partway through the game, well, we have like i mean this it was set in the 80s but we have some of those kind of like uh cassette tape decks where you can record yourself talking yeah Um, that makes sense for and i think i said i had a chemistry set um you know things that would make sense for our characters um but you know still and this ties into the resources into the school background stuff too is that like you know i had a chemistry set 
like a basic travel one or no it wasn't even a chemistry set it was a sample set so i could collect samples yeah i didn't try and go oh well yeah i know chemistry and that's like a focus for my character so yeah i have a chemistry set that can examine properly this goo i was like no i i've collected the samples and i'm going to go to the chemistry lab in the school and do it there um it's just it's it's again it's a matter of respect and stuff right like you sit down talk about what each character's backpack kind of looks like and then you kind of you know decide on a few key items decide what it says about your character because you know you someone might also decide yeah i have a backpack but you know i'm from uh, a poor family it's a hand-me-down from my like two older brothers (laughs) it's full of holes you know it might be a thing where you know you could uh because of that justify the gm later going like search your bag for it for like the pocket knife you would use for this it turns out it's gone it, it, as best you can tell it fell out of one of the holes like stuff like that yeah and i think one of the things that i'm kind of curious about is the group that we've been reviewing games with we've i think i'm i'm really curious if the fact that the session of kids on bikes that we played was much more role play than some of the previous games we've played and i'm really curious if that's because the game does a better job of encouraging that kind of, of role play that was happening, or is it partially because the four of us have been playing together a couple of times now, we're more comfortable doing the role play stuff? Uh, I think it's neither, actually. I think it's a setting thing. I think, for example, Numenera is a much more abstract setting. Right. Um, it's You could use examples from media, but it's a bit harder to get a, a hold of. Especially because right. it's a very specific setting. Yeah. Whereas Kids on Bikes is like set in a legitimately actual town. Um, oh yeah, we looked. We Google mapped it. It turns out the town in the example is literally a real town. Yeah. Um, but also, it's a very similar genre convention. It is like Stranger Things or ET or It with the the serial number filed off. Yeah. So it's a lot easier. I think it's a lot more accessible from that perspective. So. When you're playing something where you're really familiar with the genre, it's really it's easier to role play because you're like, I know this character. I've seen this character 50 times. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that because it is it has so much stronger cultural touchstones that people are able to. The, yeah, they know what kind of roles they're playing. And that's, I think, something that's really important for this kind of more horror themed game is that knowing what roles people are means that, you know, Everybody can help work together towards making making the game maybe a little bit more scary at some places because you know you know that maybe the the character playing the the bully trope is more likely to go off on their own because they're just mad that nobody's listening to them and you know set up a horror scene by accidentally just you know separating from the group. Yeah, um, I have something related I want to say, but it's not about kids on bikes. Um, so do we do we have anything else we want to talk about the game before we start wrapping up? No, I think I was just gonna like ask about what you thought about the module. But say say your thing, say your thing first. Now let's talk about the module, then let's talk about the next thing because the okay. next thing is basically about our next episode, or at least <laughs> our next review episode. Okay. Um, I like the module a lot. Uh, I liked it. Uh, definitely tricked me as to what was happening a couple of times. Um, I don't want to spoil it because I think like I think it's a good module to pick up and try out to kind of get a sense of the game. 
Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I won't say anything. I'll just say that it does a good job of the layering of the players will think, okay, this is what's going on. And then, you know, they'll learn a little bit more and be like, wait, no, is is this what's going on? Like the module does a good job of setting up, like there's lots of ways the players could interpret things and none of them will probably be right. And you'll just be sitting there steepling your fingers and going, yes. Also, I just aesthetically, I like that the covers for all of their smaller releases look like com- old comic books. Yeah. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah, it's good. Okay, uh, the thing I wanted to say. So, and I can say this because we're about to to go and play this game in like an hour or less than an hour yeah. um, from recording. So we're playing Troika next. Um, and getting to the like genre thing and ease of roleplay, I'm really curious to see what you guys do because it's very weird. <laughs> um, and like... I'm wondering if we're going to get kind of go to the opposite end where it's not necessarily familiar, but the characters that we make, which are randomly generated, essentially, uh, might be so weird and off the wall that people really want to roleplay them. Yeah, that is. I'm curious about that, too, now. Um, and we'll let so, you know about that next time. <laughs> yeah. So this, I think Kids on Bikes is a system that I would definitely be interested to either like play a short campaign as a player or to, to GM one, because I think there's a lot of cool stuff in here that we didn't really get the chance to to dive deeper into, um, because the reality of playing a single, sh- uh, single session of about four hours is that can't always get to everything. But... Uh, there is enough here, and the bike, the book is well laid out enough that uh, reading it more about what the rules are saying, the kind of situations you can set up, and uh, and all of that, I think you have a lot of time to explore what this book has to offer, rather than having to spend a, a bunch of time trying to understand it because it's you know three hundred pages. Yes, there's another thing about Kids on Bike which I think is really cool for one of my favorite genres, which is like portal fantasy. Right. Is the rule set works really well for playing a real world character that then might later on or in intermittently be put in a situation where they're in another dimension where they have powers, but not at home kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which is just a thing that I like <laughs> and I might make use of when I'm allowed to play games in person with people again. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah, my final thing to say is just that this is it was really fun to gm uh i think it's a wonderfully put together book and it gives you tons of ideas on the kind of stuff that you can do with it and uh yeah i would highly recommend even if you like if you don't have the the money to pick up the the full book um it is well my copy says 25 bucks but there is uh the free module and a quick start rules that you can get online if you want to check this out without having to spend any money yeah, and the free start rules are only 22 pages long, which makes it like not very intimidating to like pick up and read through and try. Actually, if you're if you're looking at uh what I sent you for the game, if it's the if it, if it's a free RPG RPG Day player's handbook, that's probably the full thing. I just know that for one or both of the PDFs that I sent you, I removed some pages by saving as PDF and choosing what pages to print. Okay. So there's there is information for like GMs and stuff if you get the the free RPG day handbook. But uh, yeah, uh, seven terrified children out of ten on yes. bikes. Uh, cool. I think that's that's it for this. Yes. Thanks again for listening to our show. 
We are proud members of the Cave Goblin Podcast Network. Find us and other shows at cavegoblins.com. You can support us and our network by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash cavegoblins or by joining our Discord. You can also support us by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, at Jesse Boros, or at Sean P. Hagen. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. Our art was made by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at HaleyBoros.com. And that's it. Hope to see you all out there at the gaming table. Bye! Bye. <laughs>